Well, you have two minutes, two minutes to tell one story that will change a life forever. You have only two minutes to tell one story that will change a person's life forever. What story would you tell? And by story, it needs to be a story that both kids and adults can understand. They both can get. So what that means is two minutes doesn't give you enough time to communicate a huge plot line, just a few characters, but you need to have some message that's not just memorable, but it will change a life. Two minutes. What story would you tell? Rumpelstiltskin, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, too long, too long, too long. That won't work. Goodnight Moon, Green Eggs and Ham, those are weird stories. That won't change anybody's life. How about Gift of the Magi? Remember that story where the lady had long flowing hair and her husband had a, a watch, a pocket watch? He, stole, he sold his watch to buy a brush. She chopped off her hair to buy a wristband or a holder for the watch. It's a beautiful story. Makes you cry. Won't change the world. Won't change the world. And um, please, don't say the Christmas shoes. Please. Tears won't change the world. <laughs> don't say the Christmas shoes. Drives me crazy. So what story would you tell? If I, if I had to tell a story, I was thinking through it, my first thought instantly goes to the Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend it is told of the chip one down to the big lake they call Gitchigumi. I know, I have a soft spot for Gordon Lightfoot's voice, but it's six minutes long. I've seen people fall asleep to that song. So that wouldn't be the choice of story I would pick. I would pick a story that is, I think, one of the greatest stories ever told by the greatest storyteller who ever told a story. And of course, that storyteller is Jesus. He tells one little story that is so powerful that if you believe it, it can radically, and I, I'm, I guarantee you, if you listen to this story and let it sink into your pores, it can change your life. It doesn't have a title, but if I uh, could put a title on it, here's what I would call it. Forgiven people forgive. That's the title I'd give. Forgiven people forgive. I would tell this story because I think if it's rightly understood and it's taken into the heart, and then it's acted upon, it will change you and everybody around you. And if everybody else changes and takes the story into heart, we might start bringing a little bit of taste of heaven to our homes and to our communities and to our, to our world. Problem is, most people think stories are just something to listen to, not to take to heart. But Jesus says in his stories, his stories are called parables, those who have ears, do you have a ear? Tug on them. Tug on your kids' ears right now. Grab them. You have ears. Those who have ears, let them hear. What Jesus means by that is do everything you can to understand it and then apply it and then live it. And so to do that, the story I want to tell is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Verses 21 and 22 are the preludes to the story the story starts in verse 23, and it is under two minutes. I've timed it. 
So if you open up there, Matthew 18, we're going to begin in verse 23. The title is, Forgiven People, Forgive. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In a process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owed to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and he begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him. He released him and he forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded his payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. I'll I'll pay it. He pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called him the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant! I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. Forgiven people forgive. That's the title of this story. So you could say this story is a story of forgiveness. It's a story of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Oh, what a marvelous and difficult word. Defined, forgiveness means to let go of our feelings of vengeance. To let go of this desire for personal retribution toward a person who's harmed you or hurt you. Whether it was done intentionally or unintentionally, it's to let go. So you could say it like this. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting what somebody has done to me. It means releasing them. It's not ignoring what someone has done to me. It's letting go of your anger and your hatred toward that person. You could say it like this. It's letting go of your demand for repayment from the other in order for you to feel assuaged of your hurt and pain. To let go so there will be peace now. What is so difficult about forgiveness is this. The one who forgives is the one who must absorb the cost of the hurt and the pain. That's why it's so difficult. Forgiveness is not cheap. It's not. Let's say your child throws a football in the house and breaks a lamp. The parent comes in, and Johnny's upset. All right, son, you're forgiven. Do you know the parents still have to buy a new lamp? If your spouse calls you a horrible name in a moment of stress, I'm sure that's happened a lot in the last month, and later asks you to forgive them, even if you accept 
their apology, it still hurts. It still hurts. There's still pain. Daily, people sin against each other. That is how life works. But what makes us as Christians different, we are asked not to return evil for evil. We are not to demand an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And if someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other. That's hard. But that's forgiveness. And that is what makes us unique. That's what makes us different. That's what sets us apart from everybody else. Most people retaliate. So, with this understanding of forgiveness in mind... We come to verse 21, where Peter asked Jesus, how many times, how often should I forgive someone? How often? So you could, he's asking a, a number question. How do you count forgiveness? What, is there a formula for it? You know, and Peter goes on to say, seven times? Is that how, is that how many times I should forgive? Listen to Jesus' answer. No, not seven times, but 70 times 7. 70 times 7. That's where new math began back there with Jesus. 70 times, what are you kidding me? 70 times 7? There's a lot of dispute on what he means because some translations like this say 70 times 7, that means 490 times. Other translations say 77 times, which is a little bit more reasonable than 490 times. What does Jesus mean by this? In the Jewish mind, in Peter's mind, seven was a complete number, perfect number. It's a sign that it's done. It's done. So in Peter's mind, when he offers, well, seven times, he means I'll go all the way. Isn't that enough? Seven times? Once I complete it, I don't have to go any further. But Jesus' answer, however, is not a, much about a number of times. It's not about counting. It's a principle of Mercy. It's a principle of mercy. It's the, it's the equation of mercy. In Lamentations 3.22, listen to what it says about the heart of God. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. He never ceases. They begin new every morning. So 70 times 7 means you're never done. You're never done. You're never done. So let's be honest. I mean, if you look at that equation, if you read this, Jesus says you're never done forgiving. That doesn't seem fair. In my flesh, that doesn't seem fair. Won't people take advantage of us and keep abusing us? Won't Christians become lapdogs, fools for the taking? Again, forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiveness doesn't mean ignoring. And forgiveness doesn't mean submitting back to the abuse. That's not what it means. It means releasing, releasing people from vengeance, demand that they pay you back. And you know why? You know why? It's simple. Because you've been given boatloads and boatloads and boatloads of mercy. That's what this story is all about. It's what it's all about. And so if you have boatloads of mercy... Don't you think giving some of your excess away shouldn't be a problem? So let's talk about the players in the story. 
going to set it up. There's three main actors, three main players. The first one we see is the king. King is rich. I mean, this guy is rich, really, really rich. He's also very compassionate. He's quick to forgive, and we're also going to see he's also very dangerous. The last guy we're going to see is this fellow servant. Not much is said about him. He's kind of a meager little guy. He's characterized primarily as poor. We're going to see that in verse 28. He's dirt poor. He's going to owe his fellow worker some money, a couple months' worth of pay. pay. Poor little guy. But the main guy of this story is the servant, the first servant. He's the main character. He's the one Jesus is focusing on. He's the one that owes the king big time. He is us. He's us. We're supposed to see ourselves in him and be warned. So let's see how he's described. In verse 32, verse 32, he is described by the king as evil. You evil servant. Ooh. Ooh. Have you ever called anybody evil? We gotta stop that. This guy's evil. Why is he evil? In other translations, uses the word wicked. He's wicked. A wicked person who's one whose heart is poisoned. It's poisoned. It's rebellious towards God. Does not like goodness. The wicked heart even hates others. So through this story, Jesus' aim is to expose the evil that lurks in our hearts. My heart and your heart. Because I'll tell you, to be honest, it lies beneath. It's in there. It's in there. So we need to consider a question. What makes a heart evil? Or how can I tell if my heart is evil? What is it that keeps someone living in a state of rebellion against God? Why are we so prone to hate others? You feel, you feel it every day. Trevor prayed for Governor Witness. I know some of you hate her. Some of you hate Donald Trump. Some of you hate people that argue with you online. Our tempers are running high. And when our tempers are running high, hatred is a hot temper's offspring. It's just, it's, it's, it's how we've been born. We've always been this way. By birth, we're born rebels. Scripture is very clear. Before we let Jesus in, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Titus 3.3 says, our lives, before we met Christ, were full of evil and envy. We hated each other. Not just a couple of us, we all did. And so you could say it like this, if we're all evil, it's, it's sneaky. We don't really know it. It hides. And through this story, what we're going to see is evil has deceived this man in such a way that he thinks he can receive forgiveness without letting it change who you are. That's one of evil's most deceitful tactics. It convinces us we can receive forgiveness, but we don't have to be cha- we don't have to change. We don't have to change. I would say many people in our church and even outside our church believe they're just fine. They can believe in Christ, 
but they can keep living their life as they've always lived it. They don't need to change. I've said this a lot of times up on the pulpit when you've all been here. I've said it a thousand times. I'll keep saying it. You can profess Christ all you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean you possess Him. This may be Satan's greatest work, getting me to think I possess something I don't have. That's why in Matthew 7, 7, there's going to be some people going to the gates and Jesus goes, who are you? I never knew you. So, the point of this story is to show us or, or give us an idea of how I can tell if evil's deceiving me, if I'm self-deceived. And there's going to be two distinct signs that evil has a hold on me. And I'm going to ask you to please listen. Please consider this. This story is powerful if you let it in. So I'm going to call it two signs of evil's imprint on my heart. So when Jesus tells parables, the details matter. So look close. Put yourself in the place of the characters and try to find where evil lurks in this man's heart. This is a very straightforward story. I mean, you can't miss it. First of all, the king was bringing his accounts up to date, and he notices someone owes him a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. In the NLT, it says millions of dollars. In the original language, it says 10,000 talents. Here's what's very interesting. 10,000 talents of gold. One talent of gold, one talent of gold was worth 20 years of a day laborer's wages. 20 years. One talent of gold. So, we're, t- we're talking 10,000 talents. That means 200,000 years of a day laborer's wages. That's how much he owed. So if you've ever seen the movie Count of Monte Cristo, when a Count of Monte Cristo finds the treasure, the hidden treasure, he dives in this water and there's literally 40, 50 boats of jewels and diamonds and gold bullion and brass goblets and medallions and he brings it up and it just cascades out of these boats like a mountain of gold so much gold you can't count it that's what's going on here Ten thousand talents of gold the point is it's so much you really can't account for it and the reason i'm pointing this out because it matters think about this number two hundred thousand years of work to pay off a debt so you You go into the bank manager. Hi, Mr. Bank Manager. I would like to take out a mortgage. Uh, Could I get a 200,000-year term on it? (laughs) Look at you. Go, that's absurd. That's how much money this guy owed. So look at this verse. Verse 24. Read it slow. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold. Buddy, you're going to be sold. So is your wife. So is your children. And everything you owe is going to be sold to pay this debt. The man fell down before his master, and he begged him, please be patient with me, and I will. I will pay it all. Oh, oh, you will, will you? You'll pay it all? Huh. You'll pay it all. How? How will you pay it all? Here's the problem with this man. He failed to appreciate the extent of the debt he owed. His offense was, in a way, not in proportion to his mind. In a way, it wasn't a big deal to him. 
And after he fell to the ground, he should have said, I can't pay it. I have, have mercy on me. I can't pay it. Or he shouldn't have said anything. The first sign a person is deceived in his heart by evil is when he fails to see the extent of the debt you owe. We can't get past this. An evil heart doesn't realize how serious it is to offend the august king of the world, of the universe. Who threw the who's through the stars into being. There is finger work. This man really believes he has the ability to pay him back. He's deluded on two fronts. And listen close. The first front is he's deluded on the king's magnificence. He minimalizes the king's magnificence. The second front is he's deluded about his abilities to pay him back. He exaggerates his ability. He actually believes he's able to do something he can never do. He thinks far too highly of himself. So let's think about this for a second in our world. What is the actual debt we owe? Actually. What is the fair market price to pay off my debt from sin? What is the cost to be forgiven where my holy king is both satisfied and honored? What is, what is the debt? We know the answer. We, we know the answer. We say it all the time. But, but it's not in knowing the answer that matters. It's properly embracing it. I deserve that. So we need to let the truth of it sink in. To me, there's no better way than to just let the words of Isaiah travel from my head to my heart. Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read 4 through 10. Listen closely and listen to this picture as I read it. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our transgression and crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed, treated harshly, and yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned. Unjustly condemned. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. That his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a common criminal. He's put in a rich man's grave, 
but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. To make his life as an offering for sin. The death he died, he died for you because you couldn't do it and it has to be able to move from your head to your heart. You have to not just understand forgiveness, you have to live in it. Which brings us to the second sign, actually. So the man falls on his face, pleads his case with big crocodile tears. You can hear him in there. Like you can hear him actually hitting the floor. He, he says, please. <laughs> Probably that long. Be patient with me. <laughs> and so the king's compassion's aroused. And he forgives him. And truthfully, you're going to see later on the rest of the story, it's, it's a sketchy confession, really. It's clear the king probably knew he wasn't sincere, but God is still full of mercy to the man. God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness can be seen as naively generous. He doesn't hold back or wait until the man proves his sincerity. Because God's kind, he gives. He gives. It's so unlike me, I'll be honest with you, so unlike most of us, we hold back forgiveness and even kindness until we're sure that the person who offended me changes. They need to suffer more. They don't get how much they hurt me. We wait. We hold on to our own little jail of hurt. We keep them in there until they sufficiently prove they mean it. For many people who have offended us, it might take them years to be let off the hook. You know, we're masters at holding on to hatred and bitterness. We hold those keys in our pocket, and until we're sufficiently pleased, we might unlock them from the cage for a couple days. Evil loves making people pay up. It really does. We're like the servant in this story. Watch what he does after he's forgiven of a debt he can never pay. Look at verse 28. But the, when the man left the king, so he's just been forgiven of everything, everything. His wife is safe. His kids are safe. His house is safe. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, just a couple months of pay. This is called 100 denarii. That's not much. And he grabbed him by the throat. Demanded instant, instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. I'll pay it. Wow. You could say it like this. The second sign of the evil man's heart is that the act of kindness that was shown to him only brings relief, not repentance. He was relieved that he escaped prison himself, but he was not grateful to the king, and he didn't see anybody else's needs. It's all about him. It didn't change him. Evil is still deep in his heart. So immediately after he's forgiven his debt, he goes on like he always did. Full of hatred towards others. Do you know the other guy's plea was exactly the same as his? Probably more legit. He had a more legitimate right to be let go because he probably could pay it back. But no, 
Instead of offering forgiveness, the evil man grabs the guy by the neck, squeezes. Have you ever done that to somebody in your heart? You know, God forgives you everything, and somebody, somebody uh, forgets to invite you to a party and you never talk to them again? What's wrong with us? One commentator put it like this. Listen to this. This is, um, this is interesting. You may have the legal right to make demands. So when somebody hurts you, legally speaking, they hurt you. So you have legal right to make demands. Apparently, he had the legal right to throw this poor old servant in the debtor's prison. So look, verse 30, um, his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. So legally, he had the right to do that. It was the legal right. It was a legal right. You may have the legal right to demand people make payments. But you do not have the moral right. You don't. You don't have the moral right to hold offenses against anybody. But do you know what they did to me? That's a legal heart talking. Do you know what you did to Christ? I don't think we think like that. If the king, a person of the highest rank and honor, lets you go from a debt that's infinite of value, who are you, a mere servant with no rank and no specific honor in yourselves, not to let people go who are equal to you and owe you chicken scratch? Some of you are mad at people right now. Why? The servant's inability to forgive is morally reprehensible. It's not a moral right. That is why people observing in this story get kind of, kind of up, upset. You know, that's where you get verse 31. Some of the other servants saw this and they're upset. So they go to the king and the king hears about it. You can see his, you can see his temperature rising between the lines. So the king calls the man he'd forgiven. He calls him evil. Oh, I'd hate to have God call me evil. I'd hate to have God call me evil because I won't forgive somebody. He says, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then watch this. This is what's interesting. God treated that man with a moral compassion. And because the man dealt legally with this guy, now he's going to deal legally with this guy. I don't want God to legally deal with me. He says, And the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. One question in verse 34. Do you think the man had any ability to pay this debt? So, so he's in prison being tortured the rest of his life. Okay. Conclusion. Jesus flips the whole story to us and he wants us to think through this. Listen closely to verse 35. Verse 35. Jesus looks to the crowd and he says, that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. If Jesus' death on the cross Reveals your debt to the holy God. 
What moral right, not legal right, do you have not to forgive give others? We are so caught up with legality now. Our rights, it's like, it's like the biggest thing we're all, we're all like touting. It's our rights. We're so caught up with legality now that we feel justified in fighting tooth and nail for complete payment from others before we feel like we can let them off the hook. I am not, again, I want to say a caveat. I'm not talking about an abusive relationship. I am not talking about allowing someone to keep cheating on you and lying to you. I'm simply talking about your heart and how you enjoy your superior disposition as you put yourself above others who hurt you. Hmm. Last page. You may have a legal reason to demand restitution, but you do not have a moral right that's what James says, 2.10-13. through 13. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who broke all of God's laws. There will be, this is what James says, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. What? That's what James says. But if you've been made merciful, God will be merciful when He judges you. So let's get practical. Who are you mad at right now? Is there anybody you hate? You have compiled a list of ways this person has hurt you in your mind. It could be a spouse that treats you with disrespect every day, so you've cut off your heart from them. It could be a parent that you feel has tried to control you, or abused you verbally, or even ruined your future by not supporting you better. So you disrespect, ignore them, and badmouth them to your siblings or other people. It may not be a person you're angry with. We live in a weird culture now. It could be a whole race of people. Maybe you're forever angry at the male gender. Maybe you don't trust the female gender. Maybe you think people who are gendered confused are the problem with our society. Why are you so mad at them? Honest, what did they do to you? Are they worse than you when it comes to how you've treated God? You might be mad at the church. Some people really hate the church because they'll say it's loaded with, it's loaded with all these self-righteous people. No, the church is just loaded with sinners, honestly. And that's the whole point. Don't use the excuse, well, I know I'm a sinner, at least I don't pretend like I'm not and don't go to, and go to church. People go to church to find mercy from the king. That's why I go. Not to prove we're better. No one's perfect. No, not one. And according to Jesus, no one has been worse than you've been towards God. Remember, if you break the law at one point, you deserve punishment for breaking the law at every point. But do you believe that? Has forgiveness only gone into your head or has it touched your heart? You will not progress in your faith until you see yourself in Christ hanging on the cross. Forgiveness leads, needs to leave your head and enter your heart. Where you fall on your face and say, I can't pay it. And if you go away from God still angry with others, you haven't really met with God. 
really? You need to let those who have offended you off the hook. Release them from your cage of resentment and bitterness. And here is the reason why. And I want you to listen to this. Here's the reason why. How we treat others is the truest expression of our salvation. Really? It's not how, it's not your doctrine. It's not because you wrote in a book 20 years ago, I went forward. It's not because you sang a song and cried. Do you know how you're saved? It's how you treat others. Listen to Ephesians 4.32. It says this. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That's the story. Yours is still being told. You have a lifetime to tell it. How's it, how's it going to end? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the simplicity of Your messages, Your stories, Your parables. I pray that this little story, three characters, will change somebody today listening. Somebody. Somebody in a house is listening to me and is mad. At not just people, but the world. God, pour out your Spirit so they will forgive. Forgiven people forgive. In Christ's name we pray.